The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the book club show on Inspire 105.1 FM. My name is Imrana Mahmood and I do have a special, special show today, alhamdulillah. And we've got a brilliant guest and a brilliant, brilliant book. Um, on today's show, we are going to be talking about a Treasury of Aisha, Anha. Um, this is a book written by Dr. Sophia Rahman. The little subtitle at the bottom says, A Guidance from the Beloved of the Beloved. Um, that in itself, um, as soon as I received the book, it really, really did um, like touch my heart in a really, really um, amazing way. And straight away, I think I knew that I was going to really enjoy this book. Um, as always, I am going to read the blurb at the back and do an introduction to our guest. Um, so, A Treasury of Aisha. Aisha bint Abu Bakr, Adala Anha, has been an inspiration and paragon for Muslims since the first generation of believers emerged. Held as a guiding light, a fount of wisdom, and a purveyor of the prophetic mission, Aisha's words have illuminated Islamic thought in all its branches. This book compiles 40 of her insights and statements in the categories of Quranic exegesis, tafsir, jurisprudence, fiqh, theology, aqidah, politics, siyasa, and heart softeners, al-raqaiq, with commentary for the contemporary Muslim seeking spiritual and moral direction as they traverse through daily life and its challenges and possibilities. So that's a really beautiful um, blurb to this book, A Treasury of Aisha. It's a perfect read for Ramadan. Um, inshallah, it's something that if you don't already have, you should definitely, definitely put it on your list. Um, buy it straight away. It's going to be a beautiful companion during this month, inshallah. Um, so moving on to um, the introduction to our lovely guest, who is Dr. Sophia Rahman. She is an, an independent scholar of Islam, trained both traditionally in Syria, Turkey and Wales, and through academia, whose PhD focus on the statements of Aisha bint Abu Bakr, as recorded in the work of the 14th century scholar, Imam al-Zarqashi. Her book based on this thesis is entitled Gendering the Hadith Tradition, Recentering the Authority of Aisha, Mother of the Believers. She is an advocate of bridging the gap between academic scholarship on Islam and the wider Muslim community, setting up critical reading groups and workshops with global reach to facilitate learning, curiosity and spiritual empowerment. So without further ado, I'm going to say assalamu alaikum to Dr. Sophia Rahman. How are you today? Wa alaikum assalam, Imrana. Jazakallah khair. What a beautiful introduction to myself and the book from you. Um, so pleased that you've read and enjoyed the book uh, I love what you just said about the subtitle of the book because um, mm. that's you know a, a guidance from the beloved of the beloved it seems to have touched quite a few of the readers so that's um, always yeah. always uh, a nice thing for authors to to hear um, that you know from the word go <laughs> people have enjoyed the book um, but yeah, alhamdulillah, I'm very well today. Thank you. All yeah. the more better for being here with you. Jazakallah. <laughs> thank you so much for saying that. But, you know, again, you know, thank you so much for taking um, the time out to, to speak to me. And hopefully, inshallah, Alyssa is going to take so much um, benefit from today's show. Um, I guess what would be nice just, though, to start off with is um, for Ramadan, do you have any particular intentions or, um, yeah, I don't know, any ways that you plan and prepare for the month um and yeah what does that look like I'm quite interested so I always have a slightly unconventional way of approaching my Ramadans I know a lot of people go in with mm. brilliant wonderful uh, you know um intentions and, and that's absolutely wonderful for me I usually go in my primary uh, goal for the year for the sorry for the month is always just to be entirely immersed in my reading of the Quran so nothing else and I just want to read the Quran mm -hmm. and let it be open to um, delivering a particular theme or message to me so every single year in Ramadan I feel like the Quran gives me a particular message and it's always 
something that I really need at that time in my life. Um, last year, it was very much about um, grief. I noticed a lot about sorrow um, in the Quran and how one heals and uh, how the prophets, uh, many of the prophets, alayhim salam, um, suffered in their various ways and how they had tawakkal, complete reliance upon Allah, and how they found their feet during their turbulent times. Uh, and of course, others beyond the prophets as well. You know, we have the wonderful example of Maryam alayhi salam. We have the example of uh, Khawla in Surah Al-Mujadila. We have the example of Asiya, the wife of Fir'aun. So we have all these tremendous examples in the Quran. And I think it was very much related to the fact that, you know, I'd entered Ramadan last year off the back of a really difficult year. Um, mm. I'd lost my father. Um quite quickly and quite drastically um, and that sort of connection to my father in, in this earthly realm was so suddenly severed even though we knew for for some time that he was unwell and, and it could happen and it happened beautifully it happened in exactly the way he wanted mm. and it happened with such grace um, and even as it was happening you know we just felt overwhelmed by Allah's generosity and blessings and ease even during that difficult time but you know a loss like that is still a difficult one to process um you know despite these things so last year you know that was the message I felt the Quran gave me mm -hmm. uh the year before that uh, it would have delivered a different message the year before that another one and so this year I'm just this is this is the intention that I always go into Ramadan with. It's um, finishing a whole reading of the Quran and just allowing myself to, to really hear what the Quran has to say to me because as the divine book for, for all of humankind, it you can read it in numerous times and it will always tell you something different I mean we all know this isn't it I'm sure Imran you've experienced this too where you'll have read a verse maybe you've read it a million times and suddenly one day something clicks and it means something entirely different to you mm -hmm. um so yeah that's my intention that I go into Ramadan with and I think that's such an amazing intention and, and a really a a reminder I think for myself because you're right I mean I think it, it was just maybe a few days ago and I was reading Quran and that very thing happened and mm -hmm. suddenly see it in a new light and it, it really um, resonates in a completely different way which you know that's exactly why the Quran is is a miracle you know for so many reasons but that definitely I think is is one of them that in any moment it can have such a profound effect in in, in a yeah in, in a different way but no I think that's so beautiful and, and thank you for sharing that um so then coming on to obviously in in the introduction um it said that obviously you are um a scholar of, of Islam and you know I follow your work and absolutely love everything that you do and I've, I've taken so much from from the things that you share I guess my question is that um I mean, you know, I have, I guess, my, my background is in teaching and, and I'm, you know, a parent myself. And I know how much emphasis tends to be put on, you know, young people or people just, you know, studying the STEM subjects. So I guess I was really interested to know that what kind of inspired you to want to, um, yeah, to become a, a scholar of Islam, because obviously that's, it's amazing. But yeah, I mean, I guess I'd like to know that a little bit of the journey behind that. Yeah, um, and I think that's a really important question. And, and I hope that there are parents who are listening, um, because I didn't have a straightforward, you know, sort of route into Islamic studies. Mm -hmm. um, so I really came from a background which was sort of culturally Muslim and culturally observant. So Pakistani background, born and raised in, in London, um, but not really any great emphasis on you know learning or studying um the, the the dean any more than sort of the basic things that we're all taught when we're kids mm -hmm. um and then sort of when I was about um probably 15 16 I started to become more religious myself um started mm -hmm. orienting myself towards my 
uh, Dean a lot more. I started praying five times a day, wanted to read more. Um, and sort of it started university and my parents were really pleased when I was like, I'm off to study what was it? Information management at UCL. Um, and it was, which was like um, a, a combination of computer science and, and um, business management. So they were super happy with that. Yeah, I could imagine. They were yeah. Like, yeah, massive tick, massive tick. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and then sort of three months into the course, I was hating it. You know, I'd become, um, you know, really, convinced that what I really wanted to do actually was not become a millionaire by the time I'm 21 as I had so (laughs) you know arrogantly in my in the the arrogance that you only have in you know your youth (laughs) you know I decided actually maybe that's not what I want to do and um I want to pursue Islamic studies but my parents were just as most parents are you know they were really concerned um that you don't know, what will you do with an islamic studies degree and i i even said to them um, at the time i said look oxford university mm-hmm. um, has a degree program in islamic studies what if i went to oxford what if i could yeah. get in there because yeah. i had like fairly straight um <laughs> strong strong a levels so mm-hmm. i was convinced that you know i could get into oxford i don't know if i could have but mm-hmm. you know i was convinced i could and my mom was like no no <laughs> not even Oxford is gonna sway me (laughs) I was like okay fine um decided to go back into um business management economics and Mm. went off to King's College um still hating the degree Mm. but you know I do believe that you you make your intention Mm. and Allah will open up doors for you Mm. so I remember on my very first sort of induction day they're telling us all the modules we can take up and one of the things that they had was a language option so I opened up the 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 little pamphlet that they'd given us and I thought "Ooh, Mandarin that was like you know Mm. I thought maybe I'll do Mandarin or some other you know yeah unique language that will make me interesting and different (laughs) and open up a different culture and world to me but um, yeah, I saw Arabic on there, and I I, I grasped mm. that with both hands. Um, so I I made sure I took Arabic as a module every year throughout my degree. Mm. Um, and then when I left university, when I finished university, um, I got married, mm. and I was very, again, very focused on marrying somebody who wanted to study and had similar objectives to me um you know my parents had always said look just get yourself a strong degree strong in inverted commas um they said you know get yourself a strong degree and then you can do whatever you want you know but at least you've got this backup plan which by the way in the almost 20 years since I graduated I have never used (laughs) so you know the backup plan I was just a waste of three years of my life well no I don't want to say that obviously I gained lots of skills and you know that is where my Arabic started Mm -hmm. um and uh yeah so my husband was already studying out in Syria he'd been there about um, three years already so we got married I moved out to Syria straight away um I started studying I was doing Arabic out there tajweed um and some fiqh um and that was where the journey started so yeah a very long <laughs> you nice. know that route sure. but we got there in the end no, um, not long but lovely it's that's really you know it's so nice to get a bit of insight actually into into um kind of someone's journey because we don't always you know get get to know that and and I think I love the fact that you know what you said straight from the beginning that is very kind of um like non-traditional and, and not kind of that straight route and you know and I'm sure there's so many kind of you know parents or even you know younger people that are listening in who, who've probably experienced the same yeah. um and I guess I'm, I'm I'm kind of thinking that um like if we come to um the book itself which is obviously a treasury of Aisha um the first um, chapter, which is basically looking at the tafsir of Aisha bin Abu Bakr al-Anha. Um, so it opens with um, an anecdote, which uh, I'm going to read. And then obviously I'd, I'd like to ask you a question um, about that. So it says that um, 
Uh, one day, the first Umayyad um, um, Caliph, Mu'aviyah, asked a man in his entourage, who is the most knowledgeable of all people, presumably calculating that giving a forthright answer might not be the most advantageous course of action. The man replied, leader of the believers, it is you. But when the Khalif pressed him for a more honest response, he I, he answered, well, if you insist, then it is Aisha. Um, so obviously then you you go on to then explain, you know, how I guess that is a really, it, it kind of exemplifies a certain, I guess, you know, attitude. I don't know if that's, if that's the right word to, to use. Um, but I guess my, my question is, what do you think, you know, obviously we know from history that there've been, you know, numerous, numerous female scholars that have existed, either the, their work was lost or kind of ignored. Um, what do you think can be done to address um, the fact that female scholars do often get overlooked? And then I've got kind of a second part to that question is, and how can we preserve that kind of female scholarship for, for future generations to come? Mm, that's a great question and I think that could probably be the subject of an entire mm -hmm. episode in mm. and of itself so I think the first thing in addressing particularly the latter question that you asked is actually to name those female scholars that already exist and who are already doing work and who are quite often sidelined so this particular anecdote that you've read out I actually found that in the work of a scholar and academic called Aisha Geisinger um, and it's from um, you know an article that she wrote called Aisha bint Abu Bakr and her contributions to the formation of Islamic tradition so you know if people want to look that up they they can um, so I think that that's really important that we uplift the works of other female scholars that are already out there currently doing this work mm -hmm. um, and to not approach their work from a position of suspicion. I think that sadly, a lot of mm -hmm. Muslim women's work gets um, put under a scrutiny that Muslim men's work doesn't necessarily receive. Mm -hmm. um, and that's by no means um, specific to the Muslim community. I think as a in general, when women do something, especially if it's considered as being within the realm of what has traditionally been men's role, mm -hmm. it comes under scrutiny in a way that men simply just don't experience. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that when we do approach the work of, of Muslim female scholars, we should do so from a position of curiosity rather than suspicion. Mm -hmm. and a position of trust um, as well, rather than, you know, mistrust, because I think that can often um, happen, sadly, and that gets in the way of us being able to access their work and benefit from their work. And we have to allow ourselves the ability to say, I disagree, but I'm not going to discount everything you say. I think there's too much that's invested in sort of the... Uh, personality you know that's behind a given work you know we, we we do create this sort of cult of personality so if we like somebody's work then um mm -hmm. there's almost this obligation to like everything they say and everything they do and you know this sort of fangirling or fanboying mm -hmm. around a, an individual is unhealthy mm -hmm. um so I just think, you know, allow yourself to say, OK, I like this person's work. I agree with some things. I disagree with some things. It doesn't mean that I have to, you know, we, yeah. we don't need to have the cult of personality around um, everyone out there. Yeah. Um, to take it back to, you know, sort of women of the past and, um, you know, our, our Islamic uh, intellectual heritage, um, again, I'm going to name another female Muslim scholar, um, Asma Saeed. Uh, sorry, Asma Saeed. Um, yeah. She's got a fantastic book. It's called Women and the Transmission of Religious Knowledge in Islam. It's an academic text, so it's a little bit on the pricey side. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's somebody on eBay selling it at, at an accessible mm -hmm. price. Um, or order it into your libraries. Um, yes. And she does this incredible mapping of women's inclusion and then exclusion 
um, in sort of uh, in the production of knowledge in Islamic history. Mm-hmm. Um, and she maps out really beautifully, really well for us, the multiple sort of factors at play that have caused women's um, scholarship or um, their involvement in scholarship to be marginalized. Um, But there are some really interesting things. I mean, people put it down to misogyny, and I think that that's a really very naive, very reductive way of Mm -hmm. answering that question. It's certainly not Mm -hmm. only that that might be an element but there's so much else there's politics there's economics there's social factors there's cultural factors I mean so many different things come into play I mean even with Aisha radiallahu anha um what I found so it's it's just a sad state of fate you know Mm -hmm. it's just how things developed in Medina so when we look at the other schools of thought you know in Sunni Islam so you've got the the Hanafis you've got the Shafi'is you've got the Malikis you've got the Hanbalis Mm -hmm. each of these schools of thought um, and we can take the Hanbalis out of that because they came sort of later so if we just look at the the, the first three of those um, they all sort of emerge from a particular centre of um, Islamic learning you know, in in the Muslim empire. So you've got Kufa, you've got Basra in Iraq, and then you've got um, got, uh, Egypt as well. These these sort of emerge as the uh, greatest centers of of learning. And then of course, you've got Medina as well. But what happens in, uh, in Egypt and Iraq is that these schools attach themselves to particular Sahaba, particular companions, to give greater authority to the legal rulings that they develop. Because as you know, many of we listeners will know as well, that the Quran actually gives very little by way of legal verdicts. It's not a legal text by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I mean, people may interpret certain verses to be you know, legal, mm-hmm. but even then, even with the most legalistic lens, the mm-hmm. Quran is still not a legal text. So that's where the Hadith come in. And so the, having the Hadith in the formulation of these schools of law was really important and getting that legitimacy meant attaching oneself to a, you know, a particular Sahaba. Um, so that's where you have Ibn Umar, you have um, certain Sahaba sort of emerge um, as as leading narrators of Hadith um, because they become affiliated through their own travels and, and, and through networks within those regions um, to these particular schools of law. So that's the Hanafis, the Shafis, um, and uh, well, the Hanafis and the Shafis and then the Hanbalis sort of emerge mm. out, out of the Shafi madhab. The Maliki madhab now, that's based in Medina. They had a very different approach to the Hadith. They didn't come on board with Hadith for a little while um, because Imam Malik, as you know, um, he very much believed in the Sunnah of Medina. So, you know, whatever whatever people were practicing in Medina, that was the Sunnah. Um, so he had this belief in um, almost the, the the cultural output of Medina um, being the guidance that we need. Now Aisha and her network was based in Medina. So as the schools of law are developing, the Maliki Madhab is the one that is um, <laughs> not resistant to but it's 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 less inclined to attaching itself to a single sahabi because it doesn't it, you know it's mm-hmm. the it's the city of the prophet wasallam. it has the majority of the sahaba still there it's already sort of you know colored in that way of being that the prophet sallam first touched so you know there's not that same inclination so here you know you one can't really say oh it's misogyny um mm-hmm. you know so you have to be far you know history is much more nuanced than that mm-hmm. um but yeah it's almost at the very root of um our our especially our islamic law that you know that's 
one of the many factors that will will have marginalized marginalized Aisha's um, voice. But um, I talk about this in a lot more depth in my PhD, um, which you you know kindly mentioned at the beginning uh, in your introduction is also going to be published hopefully inshallah later this year or early next year um by um oup so if people are interested in in learning more about that then uh, yeah look out for my next publication and maybe imran and i can have another chat then i would love to do that but yeah no i mean i look forward to it so yeah oxford university press which is um the generating the tradition recentering the authority of aisha mother of the believers um and yeah i mean it's a beautiful connection and, and like you said when when a voice gets um i guess marginalized the more work i guess that you know scholars can do to um rebalance that obviously i think is is really important mm-hmm. um so we are approaching um the end of the first half of the show we are talking to Dr. Sophia Rahman about her book, A Treasury of Aisha, which has been published by Cuba Publishing. Um, I'm going to mention the little um, kind of subtitle again because I love it so much, which is A Guidance from the Beloved of the Beloved. Um, So you can, um, obviously we've got the ad break now, but you can join us back in a few moments. So assalamu alaikum. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the book club show on Inspire 105.1 FM. My name is Imrana Mahmood and on today's show we are joined by Dr. Sophia Rahman and we are talking about her wonderful book called A Treasury of Aisha. Um, and this, in the first half of the show, we were talking a little bit about um Dr. Sophia's kind of journey to, to writing the book, to becoming um, a scholar of um, Islam, mashallah. Um, we were talking a little bit about female scholarship and the importance of really preserving the the, the female scholars that are already doing work. Um, but yeah, and just, I guess, the the need to really um, keep keep those voices, keep those platforms for, you know, future generations to come as well, inshallah. Um, So the question I was going to move on to next is, um, one of the um, sections in the book is called Finding Strength in the Creator Over Creation. Um, When I was reading the book, it kind of was, for me, a reminder that, you know, you also said, for example, that it's important to take account of ourselves regularly and to purify our intentions. It made me immediately think that we are obviously now in a kind of an age of social media. Um, one of the reasons, for example, of the book club show is kind of to help listeners and even myself to reconnect with reading and and reconnect in a way where we're not always spending time maybe kind of on screen and, you know, all these um whatever platforms it is that we might be using. Um, but there was one point that you know, the, I was thinking about the the emphasis on those outward aesthetics, but you mentioned at one point that the danger, you know, we're using all these filters, but what about the danger of our heart being filtered out too? And that really was like, um, just like, a, I don't know, like an awakening for me. It really, you know, hit home a little bit. Um, so I guess the question is that what advice would you give any to any of the listeners about how we can actually make more time for reflection. Um, Yeah, time to reflect and pause and, you know, introspection as well. Oh, I love that question. And really, I think it's one of those things that will be unique to each person. So, you know, some people have such hectic days and it's like, well, when do you, when do you slide in, you know, time to self-reflect? So I suppose it really comes down to each person deciding to how and when they do that but I think um you know take mm-hmm. any activity and turn it into an ibadah like mm-hmm. you know we all know the intent the the hadith about every action is by its intention and by that you can pretty much turn everything into into an act of worship um but when it comes to meditating on our or, or stopping to really to to ponder over, think over our um you know, state, the state of our ego, um, and the rest of that, I really do think one has to ask themselves the why, the big why of why am I doing this? What's the real 
driving force behind this. Um, and our first reaction, our first answer will always be one that serves us. <laughs> yeah. So I find that the first answer that we give to ourselves to that will be something that makes real good sense to us and makes us feel really good. Um, but you have to dig even further and then you have to go, yeah, okay, but now really why are you doing it? So for example, um, you know, if I have written this book, let's take that for an example. I've written this book. Why have I written this book? And I'll tell myself, you know, I've written this book because it was a, um, a dream of mine to be able to contribute something to the Treasury series of Cube. Um, and, you know, uh, it's linked to my scholarship already. And I hope that it's going to benefit the Ummah. Then I have to ask myself, and what if nobody read the book? What if there were zero sales? How would you feel? You know, and, and I think, and I'd probably, you know, I'm not going to lie, I'd be devastated. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, not even my family and friends have supported me. Um, but, you know, yeah. then then I have to ask myself the question, okay, well, what if there are sales? What if you start getting terrible reviews? Mm. What if people are out there saying, oh, she's this she's that this book is riddled with flaws bloody bloody blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um so again I have to ask myself why am I really doing this how will I feel will I be offended if people do that well if my intention was oh I'm doing this for the sake of Allah only anyway then hopefully I can take any critique and listen to it and if it is legitimate I will take it on board and I will make amends to the next um, round of print although mashallah cube were incredible so I really don't think that there are any sort of um, you know flaws on that level but if there may still be it's still a human endeavor so you know nothing is perfect except for all, what Allah creates so you know there may well be critique so what I mean to say is that each one of us have to really sit and ask ourselves the why of what we do and to continue and not to be satisfied at the first answer but to carry on pushing ourselves carry on pushing ourselves until we come to the actual you know some kernel of truth mm. about the why that drives us um and that we have to constantly be doing that and you can do that anywhere you can do that while you're cooking you can do that while you're driving you can do that while you're having a bath while you're in the shower I mean we all know what great epiphanies happen in the shower <laughs> Um, you know, you can do that for five minutes after, not even five minutes, do it for 30 seconds after you finish your salah. I really do think that going inward and asking ourselves for the why of what we do um, is really important. Mm, um, I really, no, I really love that because um, it, it is that thing of our egos obviously get in the way, and we try to almost. I mean, I say we. I should speak about myself, but you know, we, you, you, you try to trick yourself almost, maybe sometimes that. Oh, yeah, this is kind of my intention, and and sometimes that does get muddled with you know other things that might be on our mind. But I think the example that you've given is is really perfect, and and the advice that you've given about when potentially. To, to turn something into a bother, but more importantly, you know, questioning ourselves, I guess, on a, on a regular basis. Um, and you mentioned, obviously, um, this book um, that you've written, A Treasury of Aisha, is obviously part of a, of a series um, which has been published by Q Publishing. I think there's about seven, um, if I'm right. So I know there's kind of the a treasury of, I think, Imam Al-Ghazali and Mulana Rumi, so that, you know, there's a, and it's so amazing for this, for your book, obviously, now to be, to be a part of that. Um, and I guess if, you know, maybe moving on to another part of um, the book that you've um, touched upon, there's, there's a chapter or kind of a, a sub-chapter, so to speak, um, which is looking at on about the pursuit of justice um, and you touch upon like societal hierarchies and power dynamics and the way the Prophet ﷺ addressed these. Um, now what is there anything else that maybe you can suggest that like how are we to identify for example the privileges that we have um, but in a way that then we are able to fulfill you know certain duties that we have they might be civic or societal or you know for, um, in terms of family um, but you know, basically, with the intention of to be to be just and to be compassionate. 
Mm, well, such great questions, Imran, mashallah. I think um, for this, you know, so there's a book by a lady called Idioma, let me get her saying right, Oluo, and it's called So You Want to Talk About Race. Um, so this might seem like I'm starting off in a very tangential spot, but I promise I come back to answering your question. Um, and when I first, I listened to the audiobook of that, um, and I thought to myself, this is 21st century Tasawwuf or Tazkiyah, mm. depending on how you want to call this. Mm. Um, you know, this is spiritual purification for the 21st century. This is a literal manual. This woman is not a Muslim. Mm. Uh, she's an, uh, she's a, um, a, a Black American lady. Mm -hmm. She works on civil rights. She works on anti-racism, specifically against Black folk in America. Mm. But the way she's laid out that book, you know, where she names the ailment, which a lot of our classical scholars do, right? So they'll name an ailment of the heart, for example, like pride. And then they'll give you, they'll describe pride and then they'll describe how to overcome it. You know, they give you the antidote to it. And that's pretty much how she lays out her book. Um, and I thought, this is 21st century Tosawaf, Tazkiyah. This is what we ought to do. So what she's doing in the book, essentially, is giving voice to a marginalised and oppressed community. Um, we all know about racism and how it works and the particularly nefarious ways in which it presents itself in America. Um, but I mean, it's no less nefarious in the UK. It's just, you know, we don't have the same access to guns, but it's mm. just as violent in the UK as it is in America. Um, and other, you know, there are, of course, um, other marginalized communities, too. And so what I really think we have to do is to actively seek out those marginalized communities, those marginalized voices. And I love how you asked in the question, you know, um, you know, you posed it as how do we how do we fulfill this duty as a civic obligation? But you also mentioned the family. So look at who is maligned in your family. Look at who's taken advantage of in your family. Look at who's um, always left out or not invited to the table or, you know, um, in some way, shape or form kept at the margins and figure out what their story really is. Don't go on hearsay, you know, find out why they are in the position that they are in the family. There might be an injustice that, you know, you could potentially correct um, and gain reward for, you know. There is opportunity in every single day to um, do an act that is just. And you know what, and we don't have to think, you know, people start thinking about the big and the grand. And of course, the big and the grand is exactly what we we should also be aiming for. But it starts in the house. You know, I have four children, by Allah's grace. And even if I'm making four little plates of fruit, you know, I I will count the number of grapes on each of their plates, you know, lest I give one more than the other. Or, you know, when I'm making their lunch boxes in the morning, you know, I must give all of them um you know lunches that are commensurate with the others you know sometimes they have their own personal preferences but you know no one lunch should look greater than the other so you know it starts in the small things that once you make yourself habituated to always trying to be that agent of justice in the small things your the the you know our fitra which is made to uh, establish justice because that is the purpose for which Allah created us that will be awoken and it will be made stronger and we will then find injustice around us so intolerable that we will always react to it but you know you start in the small and that's how we train our nafs that's how we train ourselves and then you know become you know justice is a light yeah mm -hmm. so the the more we establish it in our lives the more illuminated our gaze is the sight that we have becomes illuminated by that and so therefore whenever we see an injustice we react um and so i think really it's about training ourselves um, into that and we can start with the small things uh, and then head outwards yeah i mean it's so 
Um, I mean, yeah, you, you using the word like illumination and, and it definitely kind of, I get that sense. And, and again, what you said about starting, um, in the small things, because I think that's what it is. You, you end up having this ripple effect, don't you? And you, you start at home, you start with that intention and then Allah, you know, inshallah will put the, put the blessing in it and, and, you know, and, and guide it to, to something bigger, inshallah. So, you know, that's really, really wonderful. Um, so maybe what we'll do is maybe another, another question just to, um, finish off. Um, so obviously the, the book itself that you've written, a, a treasury of, of Aisha, which is obviously looking at, um, the the kind of personality of Aisha bin Abu Bakr anha um you touch upon you know different things so even within the um kind of introduction and, and the contents page there's part of it which is looking at you know the I guess the the seer, um there's matters of Akida um you know Sayyidina Aisha in terms of her political influence um and I think there was one thing that really kind of well not just one thing there's there's so many but that that also stood out is you made an um a specific you say i think the word you use like a breakaway from the other treasury series is to um kind of put emphasis on one particular um story of Sayyidina aisha which is when um it, which was about the slander against Sayyidina Aisha anha. Um, so I guess the question really was why you felt that the need to want to dedicate kind of a whole chapter to that, which is obviously different to maybe the rest of the book. Oh, wow. So again, you know, a topic really that we could dedicate a whole hour, maybe days to. Um, so the the story of the slander of Aisha radiallahu anha um, isn't a story that gets a lot of attention. Uh, and when it does, it's very quickly glazed over I feel um I mean I know certainly for myself when I first finally got to this incident in her life you know I'd been a student of knowledge for many many years um so it was a real it was a real sort of curiosity for me um why why haven't I learned more about this history and this particular time in history which is so um important in the life of Aisha and the Prophet sallallahu um that I wanted to go back to it and really give it some some attention and so again I did that in my PhD I I, I went back to historical sources like Imam al-Tabari's uh, tarikh um which is just an incredible resource for us to have as Muslims um he he goes into so much detail um, on, on on the whole history. Really, it's uh, so many volumes, uh, but he really gives light to this particular issue as well. And I also wanted to read it from a woman's perspective. You know, so when this story is discussed, it's very much from a masculine male perspective, um, which focuses on the Prophet Sallallahu feelings or the political intentions behind this or the political um, uh, uh, impact that it had and the machinations that were going around in Medina at the time that created um, space for this kind of story to emerge. But we don't go into the granular level and look at, well, what did this mean in the life of Aisha? You know, she is the most beloved wife of the Prophet she is you know one of the youngest um by this time um she is beautiful she's in the prime of her uh youthfulness she's known for her beauty she comes from an honorable family uh Abu Bakr uh, radiallahu anhu is a man of great stature within the community you know there's you know and yet she has now been accused of one of the worst things a believing woman could be accused of, you know, essentially being um, unfaithful to the Prophet And what would that have done to her? You know, I mean, if we all just take a moment and imagine being a young woman, um, only married for a few years, to one of the most powerful men, to then be accused of infidelity um and to have the reaction from the prophet which was one of doubt essentially and even her parents doubted her she was truly on her own and again i think that for a lot of muslim women especially 
um, whilst we may not have had this exact experience, I think we all experience, especially in the early days of marriage, in the early years of marriage, we do experience um, shades of isolation or types of isolation, especially if you've moved out of your family home and into your husband's family home. And, you know, you can be two perfectly well-suited families, but, you know, sort of these... um, you know, issues may arise and we can feel like we're all alone. And so going through, you know, our mother Aisha's experience and seeing how she navigated that, I felt was something really important for Muslim women to be able to reflect on. But I also thought it was really important for Muslim men to reflect on as well, that, you know, think about what your wife is going through. Look at how Aisha felt and what she went through and learn from the example of the Prophet as well. Um, So for me, that's why it was really important to go through that. I feel like there are so many lessons that are missed because the reading of that um, story ends up being embroiled in, you know, sort of the politics of that time, but also the politics of our time where it ends up becoming... Uh, a sectarian conversation as well you know sort of a Sunni Shia divide emerges on this story mm-hmm. um, and whilst all of these things are important we actually miss out on innumerable valuable lessons um, for all of us so that's why it was really important for me. And I'm, you know, I'm glad that you you did that because I think by by doing that, you do um kind of um compel the reader to to really focus, obviously on on the whole book, but especially that chapter. Um, and I think to be honest, it's it's a very common theme for me when I was reading the book. The idea that there's so many ahadith that have been narrated by the, the by Sayyidina Aisha Dalla Anha that don't really get um any emphasis. I mean, I I don't know how many you know um circles that I've been to study circles and that that you end up having a lot of um learning I guess from from the hadith that she narrated and I think that's why this book is is so important and just to touch on what you said about um for not just women for men I mean I know I was saying to you just before the show that this is definitely a book that I'll be kind of purchasing as, as a gift for not just the female members of my family but you know male members as well because it's so important there that we're all collectively as an ummah really learning from you know the beloved wife of the prophet because um yeah as you know it is the book is called it is the treasury of Aisha um so we have also talked about this beautiful book um it's um been published by q publishing um for anyone listening who'd like to follow your work um what is the best way to to kind of do that is you know if you can share um yeah any kind of details for that yeah so the best way thank you is um through my instagram so you can find me on instagram at sophia that's s-o-f-i-a underscore reading um so that's probably the best way to connect with me i literally do not exist on any other social media platform so um that's the that's the best way to connect that's brilliant and um and actually for for anybody um listening like i said this is definitely um a book for for ramadan for outside ramadan as a gift inshallah for eid obviously which will be um around the corner um but just to say it's been absolute wonderful um speaking to um dr Sophia rahman it's an absolute privilege an absolute pleasure thank you so much for for taking the time out um to to speak to me today Oh no, Jazakallah khair. It's been a pleasure speaking to you and I hope it's been fruitful for your audience. Absolutely, inshallah. And um, I will be back, um, listeners, uh, next week with um, a new book and hopefully, inshallah, a new guest. In the meantime, please do keep us in your du'as and I um, wish you um, the best of the rest of Ramadan. Assalamu alaikum.
be filled with love and light May your wrongs be right, may your songs be tight May your words give sight, may your newer shine bright May you always be on the righteous side of the fight May your lovers be loyal, may your soil be fertile May your khaki stay creased, may your locks stay oil May your plans never get foiled, may your plot thicken May your chicken be halal, may your style be sufficient May your soul be free of its prison May Allah increase you in your vision May you find everything you've been missing May you awake for prayer before the sun has risen When you speak, may your audience listen May you never feel trapped in a system May you sire many righteous children Who will act on prophetic tradition May you always have food on your plate May you learn from every mistake May you rise above all the hate And may Allah increase you in your state May you never pretend that you are what you ain't May your friends be real and never be fake May your rent never have to be late and may your health always be great May Allah forgive every sin Now and forever if you falter again And may you always stay close with your kin And may he make all your enemies friends May he make reality of your plans May your present be pleasant, may you have a good end May your heart be purified of its flaws And may you act according to the laws That were revealed in the book of Allah And may he catch you whenever you fall May the one guide you to the truth and when you doubt, may he show you the proof May you be like the Ahala Suf With the wisdom of the elders, the energy of the youth May he accept your prayers and your fast The very first all the way to the last And remove obstacles that you have And may you receive everything that you ask May you never have regret for your past And receive mercy, not the wrath And as you travel down your personal path May you always have a reason to laugh Thank you for listening to our podcast. Why not tune in to our live stream at inspirefm.org and follow and subscribe to our social media platforms at inspirefmluton.